Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A lot of the work in this book is to say, okay, let's think about it sort of a two-step process. So first, let's try to get all the data and for something like breastfeeding or sleep training or sleep co-sleeping or all the kinds of stuff, let's really try to dig in and figure out like what does the evidence really say. But in most cases, that's actually not going to tell you what is the single right answer for every person. That's just going to tell you some information and some trade-offs that you have to think about. And then really the next step is to take that data and combine it with things that you know about your family's preference and, you know, put those together and then come up with a decision that's right for you. That was Dr. Emily Oster on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. to interview an economist, Dr. Emily Oster, who is releasing a book called Crib Sheet, A Data-Driven Guide to Better, More Relaxed Parenting from Birth to Preschool. And I love this book because it addresses how so much of our parental anxiety comes from our uncertainty about how we can make the best choices. And when we are really unsure about whether we're making the best choices or not, we start worrying about um, whether we're failing our children or failing as parents in general. And this actually, this topic recently came up with a good friend of mine who was potty training her child, and she was telling me that she felt like she was failing her child because it's you know, it was day three and her child was still having all sorts of accidents. And it was so great because I was able to refer back to Emily's wonderful book and, and describe the research that suggests that it takes more than three days to train a child to use the toilet. And I think that for that reason, this idea of looking to the data to inform our decisions is really useful. And, and the other thing that I really love about this uh, approach is that while Emily really does emphasize looking to the data to help you make good informed parenting choices, she also really advocates combining information from research with what we know about our own circumstance. So Debbie and Diana, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this two-pronged approach to parenting better. Well, it's interesting as you were talking about looking to the data as being a, a resource for us. You know, I think that part of the reason why that's the case is that we don't live in these communities with a ton of just data right in front of us. Because if we had a community of a ton of children that we were engaging with, we'd see, okay, yeah, on average, most most children take longer than three days, right, to potty train. But we live so isolated now that, that I think the data is nice because it gives 
sort of some information about what are the norms or what can we expect. And I think that's what we're really hungry for, as especially as new parents, and what can also lead us, or at least for some people, lead them into this anxiety cycle of are they doing the right thing and what is the right thing. And there's so many strong messages out there, whether it's messages from your own family and your own culture or just societal messages that get us all mixed up. And I I definitely have felt that in my own parenting and certainly seen the difference between parenting my first child and my second uh, of how much I loosened up and was less anxious with my second. And actually it ended up working out so much in some ways, um, so much better the, the more that I let go of control. And I think that's a theme we've seen in a couple of our different episodes coming yeah. up with the self-driven child. And and even I'm going to do an uh, episode coming up on perfectionism, which has that same theme of just kind of relaxing a little bit often is the best for all parties involved. I hate to say it because I actually enjoy reading about parenting, but I actually think parenting books as a whole tend to perpetrate this a little bit because they're trying to sell books. So they usually have an approach and usually the bottom line is this idea that there's one right way to do things. And I think as I was getting my PhD in developmental psychology, I was also often aware that what you read about in these, you know, kind of extreme parenting books doesn't really map on with what we know about human development, which is that kids are resilient. There's a lot of ways to be a good parent. There's not one magical right way. Um, And, you know, obviously there are some things that are really not good for kids. Like if, if it's an neglectful or abusive parent situation. Um, But often people stress out so much about those little things because they're told, you know, you have to do it a certain way. And that is actually not the most important thing. And it can take us away from the most important part, being with our kids, connecting with them, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, I mean, interestingly, because the book is so focused on science and our conversation really did focus so much on what the research says about some of the, you know, some of our most important parenting questions. But Emily really comes back again and again to, you know, what we need to do is figure out how to reduce the stress and the anxiety around parenting just so that we can do exactly what you're talking about, Debbie, which is be really present and enjoy connecting with our children because that ultimately is the best parenting choice that we can make. Um, the other thing that I wanted to just reflect on quickly is something that Diana said, which is some of the messaging that we get from our friends and our family and also from the media, from folks who are trying to sell us things. So I think, you know, like the potty train your kid in three days and the miracle cure for discipline and, and these all these kind of marketing tools that were sold um, and also social media that really contributes to this impression that things should be easier and that there is sort of a magical solution. And what's so wonderful about these large research studies is that they really tell us sort of the truth, right? So then we, when we don't have a village around us, that can really demonstrate some of the realities of what, you know, normal development looks like, not outside of our own family, and what normal parenting looks like outside of what we're doing, it can really help to normalize it um, in, in a way that we may not have access to in our modern lives. I actually think if people spent the time they spend reading about parenting, reading about child development, they'd probably be better off because they'd be like, oh, this is normal. This is typical instead of, you know, getting feeling judged for the way they're doing things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, you know, I found like my pediatrician and my teacher, the teacher of my children are often the best resource for that because you you go to them and say, oh, my gosh, this crazy thing is happening. I remember my when my son was just three years old and he was waking up in the night having night, night terrors and I was convinced he was going to be schizophrenic because he was 
basically hallucinating with his eyes open <laughs> and going to my pediatrician and her just saying, that is so normal. I see it all the time. And that's what sort of is, I think that's what's really relieving to us that a lot of the things that feel so abnormal are normal in the course of development. And um, having this resource like Crib Sheets is, I think, helpful to see that. Absolutely. So we really hope that you enjoy um, this conversation with Dr. Emily Oster, who walks us through some of what the research does offer us um, by way of guiding good parenting decisions. And there's actually so much more covered in her book than we were able to get to, but we hope you enjoyed these tidbits from her new book, Crib Sheet. Today I am speaking with economist, professor at Brown University, TED speaker, author, and mother of two, Dr. Emily Oster. We will be discussing Emily's just-released book, Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool, which is a follow-up to her book, Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know. Crib Sheet provides the hard science behind so many of the parenting questions that we all have, and in addition to having combed through many, many scientific studies to offer the data, Emily uses her background as an economist to offer solid decision-making strategies for parents, and, and these strategies really support making the smartest and best decisions for our kids, for our families, and perhaps even most importantly for ourselves. Dr. Oster, welcome so much. Thank you for having me. So being a parent and an academic psychologist who's all too aware of the importance and confusion about parenting choices, I admit that I am nearly giddy with excitement about your book. So your review of the data in combination with the articulation of an approach to decision-making that's flexible and compassionate strikes me right in both my academic brain and in my clinical heart, not to mention my personal parenting desires. I wanted to start our discussion focusing on the general parenting decision-making approach that you advocate. So I wonder if you can talk us through that. Yeah. So, um, so I think that often in these parenting discussions, we're, we're looking for like, what is the right answer and coming up, coming into it with the idea that oh, I have to pick the right answer and there is a, there is a right answer. And I think one of the things that I try to do in the book is, is say, you know, th there probably is a right answer for you. Um, but it's probably not that it's the right answer. That's the same for everybody. So a lot of the work in this book is to say, okay, let's like think about sort of a two-step process. So first let's, um, let's try to get all the data and for something like breastfeeding or sleep training or sleep co-sleeping or all the kinds of stuff, let's really try to dig in and figure out like, what does the evidence really say? But in most cases, that's actually not going to tell you what is the single right answer for every person. That's just going to tell you some information and some trade-offs that you have to think about. And then really the next step is to take that data and combine it with things that you know about your family's preferences or what you think will work for your family and, you know, put those together and then come up with a decision that's, that's right for you. So I think that idea that there is sort of data and evidence, but there's also many parts of the decision which are specific to your family, that's really what I'm trying to, to emphasize. I'm trying to help people in the book use some of the tools of decision-making that would be familiar maybe to economists or psychologists to, to structure these decisions in a way where you can feel happy and confident that you have made choices that work for you. Yeah, I think that's so important because, and you write this, the data are the same for us all, but the decisions are yours alone. And I, I just think that quote embodies this idea that I think is so reassuring for parents. So, A, there is some hard data and it is 
prescriptive in some ways, but ultimately the things that are unique about us are really influential in helping us to determine the right choices for us. And the right choices for us are not going to be the same as choices other people make. And that that's not only okay, it's actually great. It's sort of freeing if you can, if you can recognize that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think just I would say, I think some of the most stressful parts of, of sort of new parenting are that you are so uns- unsure about your choices and you encounter so many other people who have ideas about what the right choices are. And then every time you say, you know, I'm doing this and somebody's like, oh, ew, like <laughs> instead you should do this other thing. You, you know, you sort of, it's easy to step back. Oh, maybe I should do that other thing, you know? And I, I think some of it is really deciding like, no, this is the choice that I made and that's the right choice for me. And like, it doesn't matter if this other person says this other thing that they did. Yeah. And I think that voice in in your book really comes through that, like, there's something so reassuring. And that is, I think, a message that really gets lost in our culture that there are lots of ways to do the parenting thing right. And um, it isn't going to look the same for any two families, really. You know, there, there's certainly a heavy emphasis in your book um, of, on data and good data. And, and what's so fun about that is in a recent episode that I recorded with a clinical psychologist, um, episode 86 called Mom Brain, we discussed that there's all these sources of information that can sway parents to make decisions in different directions because I think the lay consumer really doesn't necessarily know like the difference between what, you know, some random blogger on the internet might say versus a scientist. And I think you do a great job in your book in really articulating like what is good data? Like how do we know something that's really informative that we should really take seriously versus just like a suggestion that comes from somebody without a lot of academic background or scientific knowledge. And so I wonder if you can actually lay out how we can know what good data is that can really help us to make decisions because we know that there's like a causal relationship versus something that's just somebody's opinion off of an anecdote. Yeah. So I think that there's, there's really like a sort of two big pieces to this. So one is distinguishing between like actual academic research and uh, other things that people say. And I think that that is one important distinction. And so we can learn in my view, much more from papers that are published in academic journals where someone has vetted the analysis and the methods and and how the person has come to their conclusion. And so I think for sure, you know, we should give more weight to actual studies than to, you know, people's opinions or things that people say worked for them, sort of things that are in the realm of a, like anecdote. But I think the, the thing that is sometimes harder, I think a lot of people recognize sort of that distinction, even if it's hard to hard to actually act on 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 it. Um, I think the the second piece, which is harder, is within the category of you know studies, which studies are are good and which studies are are not so good. And so not all things that are published in academic journals are created equal. And I think that the media covers things, you know, there's a lot of like study shows that I feel like that's my least favorite uh, phrase in, in news. There, you know, study shows. It's oh my goodness, what is it going to show? It could be anything. Um, and you know, the the answer is like some studies are better than others. So for example, when when your study is randomized, that's better. So when they have some people and you want to draw a conclusion about some treatment, and you randomly picked half the people to get the treatment and half the people not to, that's going to be 
a pretty good way to learn about whether something, some treatment is having an effect because the groups are otherwise in sort of similar. They should be otherwise similar. You know, on the other hand, a lot of the studies we have of parenting use what we call formally an observational approach. So they have a bunch of people and some people choose to do one thing and some people choose to do another thing and then they compare them. And sometimes those studies can can be good. I mean, that's a that's a large portion of the academic literature. And sometimes they're good and sometimes they're less good. And you want to think pretty carefully there about what are the reasons that some people are choosing one thing and some people are choosing another. And sometimes it will be, it's just sort of random or there's some other outside circumstance. And sometimes, you know, for example, something like breastfeeding, that's a, a really important choice that people think a lot about. So they're probably not just deciding randomly whether to do that or not. And then you want to think carefully about the differences between people and what kinds of problems that's likely to introduce in your in your study. Um, so th those are kind of some some bigger bigger distinction. I try to walk through a little bit more in the book, you know, how we how we know more which studies are good and which are not good. And then there's some more basic stuff like more people is better. So larger sample sizes are better than smaller sample sizes. Um, but it's hard. I mean, it's it's very hard to to kind of drill down and explain, you know, this is how you know this is a good study, this is not a good study. Yeah, but and and it's so important because, you know, if we're drawing conclusions that are going to help us to make parenting decisions, it's really important to know, like, how does if there are you know really negative effects off of deciding not to breastfeed that's really useful for parents to know but like you're saying you know well so one first point is that there are some things that are really hard to do a randomized controlled study of yes right? so you can't force somebody to breastfeed or not breastfeed because it impinges on their you know individual <laughs> rights and so there's some things that we can't study in the way that we in theory would like to study them um, at least to be able to like really determine what are the direct causes and consequences of, of making particular parenting kinds of choices. And so we do the best that we can. But when it comes to choices like that, and you talk a lot about this in your book, it's, it's really difficult to sort of d determine, like if you choose to breastfeed and there are certain attributes that are associated with making that choice, and then we look down the line at what long-term consequences or, or sort of things we're likely to see with kids who are breastfed, it's hard to sort of drill down on, like, was breastfeeding the cause of, you know, those differences in IQ, or was it something else? And I think you do a really great job in this book of helping the the reader who's not necessarily somebody who's really entrenched in academic literature to figure out, like, oh, okay, that probably means that I can't make too much of this kind of research, even though the headlines in the newspaper might say, oh, if I breastfeed, my child will have X number of IQ points higher. And so I can sort of take it with a grain of salt if there isn't the data that would really suggest, like, this is definitively going to make a difference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, um, it is, if, if nothing else, a sort of general cautionary tale about, you know, seeing, understanding the limitations of, of the data and that, you know, when studies say that doesn't mean that something is for sure correct or not correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that we'll have time to get into all of them, but there's like a number of areas that you dive into in your book that, that actually show that, you know, there's sort of like you know, cultural wisdom that says, you know, do this or don't do this, for example, like avoiding allergens or sleep training or immunizations. And the cultural, 
you know, suggestives or directives are actually wrong if you look at the data. And, and so it's, it's really important to sort of take a look at the hard data and figure out, like, are we taking in information that is helpful or, or that's actually, you know, based in just myth? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, so I think like the allergens are, the allergen stuff is kind of my, is, if anything, like if the place I found most surprising and, and interesting yeah. here, which is, you know, I don't know how old your kids are, but like when my, my daughter is eight and when she was born, they, the advice, the like standard advice was don't give your kids peanuts. Avoid like, at don't, all costs. Avoid yeah. at all costs peanuts until they're at least one, maybe two, you know, like really stay away from peanuts because they might have this allergy and like, you know, then they would have this terrible reaction. And, you know, then sort of over the period, but like even between my two kids, all of a sudden, it wasn't just that they lightened up on that, but it's now the recommendation is the yeah. opposite. So there was actually this like very successful study, like really exciting, which showed that, you know, early exposure to peanuts makes you less likely, not less likely to be allergic, not more likely. And then now we've, of course, that's been shown to be true in many allergens and there's all kinds of network on, on sort of early exposure and continued exposure and so on. But it was an example of something where it just completely changed in a pretty short period of time based on what was there, like really very good data. Yeah. Yeah. I had the same experience because my oldest is eight as well. And my yeah. youngest is two. And I also have a six-year-old and I can't remember if it was from my oldest to my middle or, or my oldest to my right, youngest. Your, your middle is probably right in the yeah, transition. Yeah. But I definitely, with my two-year-old, I remember the, the doctor actually recommending, like, go buy some bamba, which is an Israeli snack. Israeli peanut snack. Yeah, <laughs> that has, like, this peanut powder on it. So, yeah, it's, it's actually – and you, you go into some detail in the book about that set of studies, and it's, it's just from a research perspective, it's, it's just a really cool thing to see how that knowledge gets um, – obtained and then and then sort of how it can really change what we believe and what we know to be helpful for our kids. And I think knowing that science is really helpful because we can actually help our kids reduce their risk for serious allergies, which yeah. is which is a really empowering thing. Yeah, really important. So um Let's let's actually dive into some of the particular parenting questions that you explore in your book, um, focusing maybe on on some of the more pressurized ones. So here goes: um, Why is the pressure to nurse so intense, and should we buy that breast is best? Yeah. So, um, so I to to sort of think about the first question of like why has there been so much pressure on breastfeeding in the you know in our in our generation, our like parenting space, you know it's the breast, the history of breastfeeding is like totally fascinating and you should also do a show on that. Um, but you know, in, until the like sort of early seventies, breastfeeding rates were going down a lot. And then in the early seventies, they started going up. Um, and you know, especially among kind of more educated women and they just sort of have gone up and up over time. And I think the rhetoric has around the benefits of breastfeeding has also gone up a lot. So, you know, when I read, when I was doing this book, I read both my grandmother's like guide to parenting and my mother's. And then, you know, some of the stuff that, that I read in a kind of, in my, in my grandmother's one, it was like, ah, breastfeeding, that's nah, kind of for poor people, you know, and <laughs> that my mother, which just to be clear, my grandmother was poor. So that was, that was fine. Um, and then, you know, in the one that, that my mother had, it was, you know, sort of Dr. Spock was like, well, some women like to breastfeed, you know, you might try it out. Maybe you'll like it. You never know. Um, and, you know, of course, now we've gotten to like, this is the best thing you can do. It's the best start. Don't you want to give your kid the best start, you know? And I think that, um, 
you know, I think it's, there's a sort of interesting cultural question about why, why that has gotten so much attention. Um, I think as part of that attention, you, the things that you hear are so extreme about the benefits of breastfeeding. So you mentioned something, mentioned earlier about IQ, but you get sort of, you know, breastfeeding lowers obesity, breastfeeding, uh, you know, makes your, uh, you know, make your kid taller. It improves. I mean, I've saw something like it improves your friendships. I, you know, what that would mean, uh, you know, and so, so when I did the book, I really wanted to like dig into what does the evidence actually say? I think when you, when you get into it, you know, there are some small benefits to breastfeeding. So it looks like based on the best data we have, which is from a single randomized trial and studies that compare siblings. So that's kind of the state of the art in the breastfeeding space. Um, you do see some benefits on digestion. Um, so for, you know, little babies, their digestion, tends to be better. They're less likely, less likely to have serious like diarrhea. Um, and, uh, there maybe is a little benefit on ear infection. Um, I think that evidence is more mixed. Uh, and then actually there seems to be some benefits for mom, uh, in terms of breast cancer reduction. And, and that's kind of it. So that's not, that's kind of it in terms of the benefits that are supported by the best data. So those are, those are benefits. That's not nothing, but these kind of gra more grandiose claims about IQ and obesity and asthma and, you know, all these later life things for your kids, those just do not have support in the, in the best data on these topics. And so I think that, that, you know, when you look at this, I think that it, it presents a more balanced picture um, of, you know, the value of the value of this. And I think it also is, it's a bit of a caution about the kind of, you know, emphasis and pressure we put on this, uh, on this, this behavior for women, because I think it really, it, be, it becomes a really like high stress, difficult, upsetting experience for a lot of women to feel like, you know, the first thing that happens is maybe they've failed. Yeah. You know, a lot of like, you know, some, some people think breastfeeding is great. And I think, you know, consistent with Dr. Spock, like if you like it, that's awesome. Like, that's so great. And, you know, I think that, that that's wonderful. But I think for many women, it, it is hard. And maybe they they don't want to go until their kid is two or they, they can't do it or it's not working for some reason. And I think it 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 becomes so unhappy and stressful and and just really like hampers those first weeks of parenting, which are already very stressful and, you know, upsetting in some ways. Uh, and so I, I think that that isn't really doing anybody a, a service. You also talk a bit about some of the drawbacks of breastfeeding, which are real too, right? That it is like extremely, I mean, first of all, and I'll say this from personal experience, it's very, very painful in the beginning. Yes. And I think oh. people don't talk about it. And one other thing just sort of on the, on the opposite side is that you talk about the evidence that women are more likely to persist in breastfeeding with a lot of support. And I think that makes a lot of sense given how difficult it is to figure out how to breastfeed, especially if it's your first time because you don't know what you're doing and the baby doesn't know what they're doing. Baby doesn't know. And yeah. there's a lot of pain. And um, so it, it, and it takes a lot of time. And then it means that your sleep is going to be more interrupted because you're sort of on the hook for providing the, the sustenance to the infant. So there's a lot of drawbacks. And I think when you put that in the context of the more limited benefits that are supported by the science on breastfeeding, it helps to sort of reduce the, the guilt and the shame if you decide or can't nurse your child. And I think 
that any like you're saying like anything we can do to make the first months and years of parenting a little bit easier and a little less anxiety provoking for parents is good right because at the end of the day if we're unhappy and stressed out that isn't ultimately good for our children oh, anyway I so i think in the breastfeeding science i think that that's it's really useful to sort of have a clear picture of like there are some benefits they're they're far more limited than we sometimes believe them to be or, or that we're sort of inculcated to believe them to be and that can help us make decisions about what what really does work best for us and our children. Yeah, and I I think in the in the breastfeeding the other thing that I that I found was sort of on the one hand we're telling women like this is the most important thing you can do and on the other hand we're not really helping with how you can do it successfully. And so so I have this why I have in the book I have two chapters, one of which is like, you know, here is the actual evidence and the benefits, and the second one is just like, okay, if you want to do this, like here are some things that going to make it work better or or you know or not make it work better. Um, and I think that that's, it's sort of such a shame to be like, this is so important. Oh, by the way, you have to feed your kid under a blanket, like at the restaurant because no one wants to see your boobs. It's like, yeah. well, you know what? Like, I'm just going to take them out. Because if you told me this is so important, you should be willing to see my boobs. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I love to, you, you, um, I think you really share a lot of your personal experience in, in a variety of parenting domains, yes. but you know, including the, the breastfeeding domain. And I think like, you dis- your discussion of your first time being a nursing mom and how difficult it was and how hard it was to get your milk production up, I think it just really makes it so so much more palatable to figure out like, okay, it's normal. Like the, the challenges yeah. and the struggles and the, the sort of, oh my God, like how do I do this? What does this look like? You actually have a picture of a nursing mom in sort of the correct position. And you also admit like you can't really know from somebody telling you, it's like you have to be there doing it hopefully with somebody else by your side who's had some sleep who can say no like hold the baby this way (laughs) and that was definitely my experience the first time I nursed my baby and you know by number two and three I had it down but the first one I was like ah I have no idea what I'm doing and this hurts so badly and oh my god nobody told me about this yes no and then I have I have the pillows that was the thing with the first one I had like all the different breastfeeding pillows there were like all you like put them around you and and you know and then with the second one I was just like oh I'll just take like any pillow you know (laughs) or no you know it was like totally fine um but yeah at the beginning I was just so bad it was so hard it's so it hard so at hard. first, yeah, and nobody and, – and there's so and little tell discussion you. about it, right? It's supposed to be so natural and easy and, and just what, you know, a, a mom is supposed to know how to do. And it, it often isn't that way, which is why the support is so important. And, I again, it's – like many things in parenting, we assume that it's supposed to just come naturally. But really, yeah. like anything, it's a skill that we build over time, and it's much easier to build when we have people – who know, who aren't sleep deprived, who can assist us and help us figure it out because parenting on so many levels is so very complicated. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. So let's um, talk a little bit about sleep. You talk a lot about sleep because there's so much about sleep that comes up in so many different areas. So there's like the parent sleep, there's the kids sleep, there's the location of sleep, there's the scheduling of sleep. And in all of these areas, there's um, a lot of directives and a lot of ideas that float around the ether about like what we should be doing in the right way in the terrible way that you could parent if you do x y or z and you very methodically go through a lot of the data and I think um, it's so very useful so let's start by talking about the minefield of sleep training okay Um, if you don't mind (laughs) absolutely all right so 
One of the things that I really liked in your book is that you you talk a bit about why it's so controversial and you go into the history of this. And I actually, I didn't know some of this history. So I wonder if you could talk us through some of the history of um, why we've developed some of these ideas about why or how sleep training could be so, so terrible for our kids. Yeah. So, so as you, as you allude, I think there's this idea that like, if you, you know, if people say, if you, if you sleep train your kid, if you let them cry themselves to sleep, that they will like, that will affect the attachment between the mom and the, and the baby and like forever be, be damaging in some, in some way. And so the, the origin of this is, um, is, uh, Romanian orphanages. So, uh, which is sort of amazing when you think about it, but um, but you know there was a, a period in the in the kind of 1980s in which there was a a sort of complete breakdown of reproductive policy in Romania, and a lot of they basically shut down birth control, and there were many unwanted babies, and these orphanages were sort of full of full of babies, and they were they lived in really horrific conditions and you know, were not tended to. And there was a lot of physical abuse and sexual abuse and emotional abuse and all kinds of other sort of terrible things happened. Um, and so, you know, ultimately when the um, researchers came in and not researchers, but policymakers, people came in to try to to help these kids. You know, one of the things that they that they noticed was that the, the babies in these orphanages would not cry um, because, you know, they sort of knew nobody would come. And so they had learned not to not to cry. And this is all like extremely sad. And, you know, uh, was a terrible thing to have to have happened, um, and these kids did indeed struggle even after leaving the orphanage and being adopted, and so on. They, like many of them have struggled for for a long time because those early years are are important um, and you know important for learning to form attachments and and so on. And so, but the the I think the the place where this sort of goes too far is to then take this and say, you know, sleeve training is kind of like the Romanian orphanage because your kid has learned that you're not coming, and that's why they're not crying because you're not coming, and you know, you they feel you've abandoned them, and that's going to have these long term effects. And you know, I I think that that um, is really uh, a very long uh, large stretch conceptually. I mean, no one is suggesting that you know you do anything that is close to the kind of treatment that people had in these, in these orphanages. I mean, having your kid cry for 35 minutes for four nights in a row is, is really, really different than, you know, not having any human contact for eight months um, or uh, three years or five years, or, you know, th those are just totally like qualitatively completely different experiences. Um, and so, uh, so that's, um, that's kind of the source of the source of this. Uh, and, and then, you know, what I try to, to do in the book is note that that's the source and then say, look, in order to actually understand whether there are really effects of this as it is practiced in the West among people who are like sleep training their kid and letting them cry for, you know, three nights, uh, to, to get them to sleep, we really need to look at the impacts of, of that actual behavior on later outcomes. Uh, when you, when you do that, um, and you, there are actually many, many studies of this, some of which follow kids until they're, you know, five or six years old, some of which just look at them in infancy. Many of these studies are randomized. So they, they have the kind of causal claims that we would like, where they randomly tell half the people to sleep train their kid and half the people not to sleep train their kid. You know, you, you simply do not see any evidence of these kind of negative effects that people have claimed. So when you compare kids who are five or six and look at things like attachment and behavior and all kinds of stuff, they, the kids just look exactly the same. The, the difference is the sort of impacts of these sleep training 
programs are, you know, one, um, kids tend to sleep better, uh, like right afterwards. So sleep training is pretty effective at getting your kid to sleep better. Uh, it's pretty effective uh, at getting parents to sleep better. Uh, and in fact, there are actually reasonably sized effects on on parental depression and marital satisfaction in the positive direction. So so sort of rates of, of depression uh, go go down, rates of marital satisfaction go up because people like to, to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the sort of overall picture that is painted by this literature is is pretty positive. Now, that doesn't mean you have to sleep train your kid. I mean, this is a this is a, a very personal choice. Uh, but I think the idea that people should not be doing it because of some extrapolation from a completely different circumstance that it really has nothing to do with this uh, with with this behavior. I think that that's that's just a bridge too far in terms of what we can learn from evidence. Yeah. And I think that that again is is sort of where the data can just be really freeing that you can make the choice to not sleep train your kid and and that is a personal choice and you know will you know hopefully be, de- be determined by you know your your family circumstances and how much sleep loss you're willing to tolerate yeah. and what kind of a kid you have and in all sorts of pieces of evidence that you can incorporate into that a larger decision knowing that the data is is pretty consistent and um and solid because it comes from a lot of these randomized controlled trials that it suggests that there aren't any negative long-term short, short-term or long-term effects for your children um, can really give you the opportunity to prioritize getting better sleep sooner because there are these there are a couple of sleep training programs that actually work pretty well and you talk about sort of like um, they're all different you know healthy sleep happy child Ferber there's like a bunch of different yeah. versions of this yeah and and I think yeah. even those have like some different qualities that can work better or worse for you but they but most of those sleep training approaches work pretty well and so you know yeah. making those choices to, to engage or not engage is a personal one but if you for example know that you tend to get very stressed out or depressed or anxious when you don't sleep. And and that's certainly true for me. Um, There is a lot of value in pushing forward. Yeah, no, I think that's right. But I mean, I think again, like it, it's sort of really, this is a case where it really is a lot about what is going to, what works for you, like what you think you can do, you know, what your, like what the other circumstances are in your, in your life. And, and I think that, that families are going to make those choices themselves. But I do think that the data here is, is reassuring if you think that that's something that, uh, that would, that would work for you. Related to the sleep training thing, you talk a little bit about the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations for early sleep in terms of location. And and this kind of relates to the sleep training thing in terms of like the choices that we make. So for example, if your child is co-sleeping in your room or in your bed, um, your choice about what kind of sleep training you do or don't do may really be impacted. But the AAP recommendations are to um, share a room with your child until they're a year old, if I'm correct, and and That's right. to remove any soft objects. And um, there's a couple other things. And you actually suggest in your book that they go a little bit too far based on the data. And so I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what you found in your um, review of, of the science that's out there on sleep location. 
Yeah. So I so in that in that part of the book, I talk about sort of all of the pieces of this recommendation. And there's a piece about sleeping on your back and a piece about sort of sleeping in the bed and, and a piece about soft stuff in the crib. Um, and then there's this piece about sharing a room where, as you say, like sort of official recommendation is, you know, th- until a, a year. Um, and this is a recommendation when I sort of poke around with pediatricians like, you you know, you poke around pediatricians and you say, like, what do you think about having your kids sleep on your back on their back? Your pediatrician will be like, I think that's extremely important, which is true. That's like very highly, you know, supported in the data. Yes, pediatricians about the room sharing, they're often like, well, you know, that's not the one I spend the most time on. Um, and, and yeah, so when I sort of look in the data on this and we try to to think about what is the what is the evidence that we have. The the concern here is about sort of an increased risk of SIDS, um, sudden infant death syndrome from when babies are sleeping outside of the of the room. Um, and there there is a little bit of evidence in in the direction of sort of sharing a room, reducing those risks. The evidence isn't especially good. Um, for one thing, it comes from from studies called sort of case control studies, where um, not to get too much in the weeds, but basically they find a bunch of babies in that case who have who have died of SIDS, and then they they find a control group and they compare things about the behaviors in the two groups. And in many of those studies, the control group is selected differently than the than the the group that died, and so there are a bunch of problems on top of other problems that all studies have. And so those studies are are not ideal, um, but you know there's a little bit of evidence. Um, there's a little bit of evidence in that um, in that space. Um, so even to the extent that you that you believe that evidence, which I think is is a little bit of a of a stretch, uh, almost all deaths from SIDS happen in the first few months of life. So within the first four months of life, and so the kind of argument for keeping your kid in your room after that point uh, is is very weak. In addition, there are other studies which look at infant sleep which show that kids who are sleeping in their own room by four months sleep better at four months, they sleep better at nine months, they sleep better at two and a half. And, you know, kids who are in their own room by nine months sleep better at nine months and better at two and a half. And so I think the the issue with this recommendation is both that it isn't especially well supported by evidence, particularly after the first, you know, few weeks or or the first couple of months. And it has these like negative impacts on long-term infant sleep. So that's why I sort of say in the book, I think this recommendation goes too far. I think it, it, it goes too long in in life, and it would be fine to say, you know, you might consider keeping your kid in your room for the first, you know, few few months. But I think to say you should, you know, keep him in your room for a year is uh, is is not not well supported in the data. Certainly not well supported like some of the other recommendations that they make in the same space, like put your infant yeah. to sleep on their back. Yeah, and I mean, sort in terms of some of those other recommendations too. I think what I like about how you lay it out in your book is that there, there is some risk no matter what you do, right? We, we, there's, we, I think in our modern age, because we know so much and we have, you know, gained a lot of information with science and practice and, you know, passing histories down from one, you know, generation to the next that we think we can control all risk. We can't actually, right? There's always some uncertainty in life. Um, But I think you argue really, um, compellingly that 
we can know what the risks are and try to mitigate them as much as we can, but also, you know, decide where we're willing to accept, you know, risk smartly. So for example, if you decide to have your child co-sleep in your bed, just do it smartly, right? Because there are some things that really increase the risk of of danger to your child. Um, And those are, you know, smoking, drinking, having a lot of soft things in the bed, um, falling asleep on the couch. So it's actually safer to fall asleep in your bed with your child than it is to fall asleep on the couch. And the data is pretty compelling in showing that um, association. And so I think in in being able to review that data, you can actually make sleep choices that mitigate the risk rather than just sort of bluntly, you know, following some general directions that you, that don't sort of offer the, the data that allow you to make decisions that, you know, take into account your personal circumstances. Yeah. And I think, you know, by not, there's sort of sometimes people like to say, well, let's just tell people what to do. We have these guidelines. We're going to like tell them what to do. And I think, and we're not going to say this thing is more important than this other thing because you should do all the things. And I'm just going to tell you what all the things are. And I think that by not explaining and not prioritizing, we sort of end up in a situation where where people are not making the most informed choices. So if you say, you know, don't sleep in the in the bed with your kid and also don't sleep on the sofa with your kid, that sort of suggests, well, if you were going to sleep in the bed with them, you might as well sleep on the sofa with them. But that's completely not true. Like, you know, co-sleeping safely in the bed is like way, 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 way safer than co-sleeping on a on a sofa. And so, you know, I think we we do need to give people the actual information so they can make these choices in a way that is that is as informed as possible. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that having the data allows you to make your own independent decisions as smartly as possible. And yeah. and I think those blind directives really limit your ability to do that. So that I think for that reason this book is just such a godsend and, and such a useful instrument for parents that are trying to figure out like how do I make good choices for myself given, you know, my circumstances and, and you know, whatever the the things that work best for me are. Um all right. So Switching to a different topic, so work choices. So this is another one where I think there's a lot of pressure and shaming and judgment, you know, the the so-called mommy wars. So deciding whether or not, if it's a decision, you know, sometimes it's not a decision. But I actually, what I really like about your book is that you talk about, you know, sometimes there's more of a decision than we even allow for, that we often have this narrative that we say to ourselves or that we say to friends or colleagues, like, I have to work or I could never work. And the reality is that there's often more choice there. And if we allow ourselves to explore what choice there is, it allows us to make it more intentionally and and with better um, strategies in hand. So you sort of separate out the the work choices in in three different areas. So what's best for the child? What are the budgetary realities? And then what do you want to do? And I'll just share a quote from your book that I really liked, which is that you write, ideally, this choice starts with theory and hard data, not with guilt and shame. So I wonder if you could share some of the hard data um, on staying home to raise your children and not working outside the home versus, you know, keeping a professional life going while you have young children. Yeah. So, so I think, as you said, there's sort of these, these three pieces that kind of like the budget, the, you know, what do you want and what's good for the kid? And I think our discussions about this almost always focus on like, what is good for the kid? And so when I talk about the data in the book, I, I go through that. And the answer is, you know, number one, the data on this is not great. Uh, the choice to work is wrapped up in a lot of other things. And when we compare 
women who work to women who who don't um, and there are kids, you know, those are different kinds of families. Um, so I think that's that's a little um, that that's hard. But to the extent that we do have data and, and there is some it it basically suggests that it doesn't matter um, that, you know, if there are any effects, they're very small and probably there are really no effects. It just it probably isn't doesn't matter for your kid whether you work or not. So in some sense, the thing we're talking the most about, meh, it's like it's it either way. You could go either way on this. And and so although that is what gets all the emphasis, it it isn't obviously going to push you in any given direction, which I think is sort of freeing because then it says, okay, well actually this choice is just about, you know, your family and your budget and like what you want, which are way less emotionally fraught. And, you know, it's, you know, it's hard. People don't like to talk about money, but, you know, ultimately sitting down and except thinking about, economists. <laughs> except for economists, we love it. You know, sitting down and doing a spreadsheet with money isn't like something that makes you sad or feel, I mean, maybe it makes you sad, but it doesn't make you feel like a bad mom. You know, it's just like, there's some some numbers, um, and and then I think this piece about like what do you want is is really not something people bring up. As you say, there's so much of this discussion is like you know, around well, I have to work, I would never work, you know. That's as opposed to you know saying you know I really like I really like my job and like I I would prefer to have my job than to stay home with my kids. And I think like that should be okay. Like that is true for me. You know, I, I love my kids. I mean, I'm like obsessed with my kids. I spend, a hu- you know, a huge amount of time with them, t- except for at my job. And, you know, but but I really also really like my my job. Um, and, you know, I, I, I would not like to be a stay at home parent, you know, but I, I think at the same time for me, like I, I do make some professional sacrifices because I have a desire for a particular amount of time with my kids. So I don't like I don't like to be away for more than a night or at most two. Um, like that's really important to me. And I think it like I feel like it should be OK to say like, you know, yeah, like I have a job, but like here are the limits that I put on my on my work life. And because that's the thing that works for me, not because it's important for my kids. They are fine if I'm not there for some period, but like it's not good for me. And I think that we really need to to do a better job recognizing those those preferences and the importance of those preferences and being able to say them like out loud to other people. Yeah. Yeah. I love in your book, I just, I think this is, um, it, it sort of speaks to, I think why somebody would want to work and also why somebody would want to stay home in either direction. I mean, you, you make a, a decision in one direction and many parents might make a decision in the other direction, but you sort of articulate it and I'm going to uh, butcher it. So feel free to correct me, but that at work, there's sort of like a more consistent uh, feeling that you get something back, you know, from the first hour, from the fifth hour, from the sixth hour, from the seventh hour. Whereas for parenting, there's really a diminishing return because it's so emotionally taxing. It's, it's very exhausting and it's, there's the highs are high, but the lows are low. So for you, like a full day of work, feels like a good use of your time, whereas a full day with your kids just leaves you maybe feeling spent. And I think, um, you know, that's a very relatable thing. And then for some parents, I think they might feel like, you know, it is a high, high and a low, low, and and I don't want to miss a moment of it. And so the choice might be to to engage in stay-at-home parenting. And I think either way, the choice is up to you. And it's so, again, so freeing to know you're not going to be damaging your child if you decide to work. And in fact, if you're happier and more fulfilled for doing it, that actually feeds back in a positive way for them in the first place. 
Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I think that's just, it's just a really important thing to be able to say, but also not to like, to be able to recognize that, that other people are going to make a different choice, not because they think your choice is bad, but because that is the choice that is right for them. And so I think in these, in these, in these comparisons across moms, you, you have this feeling of like, this is, this is like, what kind of mom am I? Like, this is a kind of mom and, you know, other people should be that kind of mom as opposed to saying like, this is a set of choices that I'm making and like other people make other choices and like, that's great. And I think that we, we really like wrap this up too much in, in our, in it's, it's become too much of a, of a dividing line for, for women in a way that I think is, is not helpful I mean, partly it's just very gendered. Like, why can't, why, why aren't the men staying home more frequently? <laughs> like, but it's always just like, it's become, it's become very uncomfortable and in a, in a, it's not helpful. Yeah, it's not helpful. And there's no basis for it, which I think is really important to know that we can, we can, we can all be really good, loving parents, even if we work and we can be good, loving parents if we don't work, that um, the, the love is still there and the commitment is still, still there. there and, and the, the damage is not there. So, exactly. <laughs> so that's good to know. Um, and so we're, we're probably going to run out of time soon, but I did want to spend a little time talking about, so if you do work and you make a choice of who's going to take care of your baby. This is another one of those areas that I think is very loaded and the, the data is really interesting on it. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting in terms of choice, and, and of course, as an economist, you talk a lot about decision-making, is this idea that like when we have a lot of choices, we can get really overwhelmed and we can tend to think like there is like a perfect choice. And just as with many choices, with childcare, there's there's not really like the perfect choice. Each choice has pros and each has cons. And interestingly, there's some really uh, cool developmental findings about like, you know, there's a slight lean towards some kind, some forms of childcare being a little bit better at the younger ages and then, um, you know, different kinds as they get older. Um, so I wonder if you could talk us through some of the decision trees on childcare if you do work. Yeah, so... So I think one of the things that happens in childcare is is like there are there appear to be so many options. Sometimes, you know, particularly if you live in like an like an urban area and there's like many different uh, you know, daycare things and then there's like 23 daycare centers and there's 15 and this person has a nanny and there's oh this is a nanny share and and it's sort of like overwhelming and people kind of just default to like you know, I don't know, something they drove by on the way to, to, to school because like they, they couldn't deal with it. And, you know, so what I say in the book is like, look, you know, you want to think about this systematically and you want to limit your, your choices uh, in any given part of the decision, because thinking about, you know, 15 different nannies and 25 different daycares all at once, like you can't, you can't do that. Um, like people, there's like a choice overload. I mean, it's just like, that's just not a good, that's not a good way to do decision making. And so what I say is, okay, look, you know, let's say your choices are like nanny or daycare. Like then you want to think about, all right, what's the best daycare? So like, let's say I had to choose daycare. Let me compare the the different daycares and decide like, what would I pick? Now let me think about like, what if I had to choose a nanny? Like, what are the things I would look for? How would I go about doing that? Like who is sort of the best kind of nanny? And then, you know, once you sort of see like, what's the best daycare option? What's the best nanny or nanny share or parent family or whatever the other things, then you can kind of compare, compare those. So I'm sort of advocating like deconstructing this decision a little bit and trying to make it in these, in these pieces. And then, you know, you can use a little bit of data. And I think that for, for sort of both nanny and, and daycare, there's like a little bit of, 
like data that might help think about like what's a good daycare, what's a good um, nanny. I think unfortunately a lot of those, the, the data on those isn't always so so great. Um, although, you know, there are a few things uh, that I think are pretty helpful about like what kinds of things to look for in a, in a daycare, like to sort of make sure that it's like very focused on the kids um, as opposed to sort of focused on the adults or involving a lot of television. Um, but then, uh, then there's this sort of ultimate question of like, okay, you know, how do we think about comparing daycare versus nanny, which I think does come up a lot in people's, um, in, in people's minds. And, uh, and there, I think actually the developmental evidence, as you say, is sort of, is sort of interesting that, you know, on the whole, these look very similar, uh, to the extent that there are any differences, they suggest sort of maybe nanny would be a, like a little bit better early on and maybe daycare a little bit better later on. But if you said, you know, I'm going to start at zero and I'm going to like have my kid in some kind of childcare, like until they go to school, it roughly nets out. So basically it would be either thing is fine, um, for, for that thing. And even to the extent that there are differences, you know, they're very, very small, like well within the range of other kinds of things you're you're gonna other kinds of variation that you're gonna experience with your kid so again I think it really is gonna boil down to like what is gonna work for your uh for your budget and also you know for your commute and other you know other I mean there are a bunch of considerations like that that are very practical that are probably as important as anything else Absolutely. And I think that you you sort of summarize it in, in this way, which is that parenting quality trumps childcare anyway. Yeah. So choose something that works for you, that allows you to be the best kind of parent that you can be in terms of reducing your stress, you know, whether it's budgetary stress or the stress that comes with, you know, a nanny that's going to need X amount of vacation or a daycare that's going to yeah. close, you know, for X amount of time. So I, yeah, I think, yeah, I think if you're driving like an hour out of your way every day on your commute, so your kid can go to like a daycare that teaches Mandarin, like that's probably not, uh, probably not a good idea. Um, and, and sort of, or something that at least you should think, you should sort of think pretty carefully about the impacts on your family of that, of that choice. Yeah. One other finding that I think is pretty interesting is sort of that just kind of speaks to the fact that every choice that you make has some benefit and will invariably have some drawback, which is that, you know, in if you send your child to a daycare versus a nanny, they will have more exposure to germs early on and therefore they will get sick more. But... That means that but. they'll also be developing more immunity. So later on, and not even that far down the road, they'll actually have a stronger immune system. So it just kind of goes to show that you can't avoid risk. But the good news is that with a lot of the risks, there also are some advantages that that will be accompanying it. No, exactly. And I think that that's a good a good example of where you know, yeah, in the moment it's it's bad, but of course it's nice when your kid can go to school every day in the second grade. Also, um. <laughs> that is a beautiful thing. So you end your book with uh, a piece of the best adv parenting advice that you've ever gotten, and I loved it, and it's all about letting go. So I wonder if you could share some of that wisdom. So um, so this it's very funny. I actually encountered on a Facebook group that I'm on somebody having exactly the same concern this morning. So I will articulate my version, version of this, and maybe she will be listening. So... Um, so when my daughter was two, we were going on vacation uh, to a place that had bees and she had never been stung by a bee before. And I got into my head this idea that like, what if she is allergic to bees? And like, like I'm not allergic to bees. She's not allergic to anything else. Like, but I just like got this idea that she's allergic to bees. Maybe she's allergic to bees. And we went to our well visit and we had this 
really wonderful pediatrician who was like very relaxed. And so I started in with this story, like we're going on this vacation and then we're going to be in this place. It has so many bees, you know, what if she gets stung by a bee? And then like, she has it, it's kind of isolated. Like we'd have to take the car. Like what if we couldn't get her to a, to a doctor and, and, you know, should I bring an EpiPen? Like maybe we should do this. Here's like all my ideas for how to address this like thing. And I, so then I sort of stop and she's just like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just try not to think about that. <laughs> And I was like, okay. And it was sort of like that deflating moment where you're like, yeah, you're totally right. Like, that's insane. And like, in fact, that it actually is a crazy concern because, uh, I mean, it's crazy for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is actually like, if even if your kid has a bee allergy, it typically wouldn't, it wouldn't like come in on the first bee sting. But at any rate, it was like, even putting aside the particular issue of the bees, it was just this sort of moment where you realize like you, I built up this very like minor kind of esoteric concern into this sort of huge like thing that was like occupying all this mental space. She's just like, just don't think about that. Like, that's not a thing to think about. And I, I, I do, you know, like, I try to remind myself of that about a lot of things um, in, in parenting uh, that sort of like sometimes you just have to like not think about it because there isn't anything you can do. It's probably not a big deal. And, you know, if that happens, I guess we'll think about it then. But, you know, you just have to sometimes let it go. And I think in this sort of modern, the modern parenting approach is so like, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to like try to do everything and get everything exactly right. And I think sometimes we just need to recognize like this is not a system that is like fully under our control. And I think that that can be scary, but it also can be a little bit freeing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I- that's that's why I, that's where I think the advice in in your book comes in so handy because it kind of just suggests you know look at the data make good choices and then at the end of the day there's lots of things that are just simply not in our control and and it is okay right that's a part of the way the system works in fact like it that's a part of how we develop immunity and and develop resilience and allow our kids to be creative problem solvers and allow ourselves to you know encounter and grow, you know, with new challenges. So it is scary and we care so much as parents, but I think that is a really important take home message that I think all parents can benefit from hearing again and again, because, because we all need reminding of it. We do. Me too, for sure. Um, so I just want to sort of leave our listeners with a little bit of, um, bait because there's a lot more that is covered in Emily's book that is incredibly valuable. So other topics that we don't have time for, but which are so helpful as uh, parents of young kids that she covers include um, baby scheduling, vaccinations, introducing solids, language and physical developmental milestones, potty training, discipline, education, and also marriage for parents with young kids. So I think, um, you know, looking at the data, you know, recognizing our personal preferences and constraints in all of these areas and and sort of taking advantage of all the research that Emily has um, coalesced in in her wonderful book is going to be really, really helpful for all of us parents. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Please share this episode with any other parents that you think might find it beneficial. And you can also purchase Emily's book by clicking on the link through our webpage. Uh, And if you like this episode um, or have any comments, please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. 
This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. Thank you.